Welcome back to WWC. I'm your host, Will Wright. Today we are addressing the papal elephant in the room. Now, there's been many things said about Pope Francis since 2013 and his election. Uh, there's been a lot of things on social media and on the internet and, and so many confusing things coming out of the Vatican. And it's hard to sift through all of it. What did Pope Francis actually say? What's been reported about him? Uh, what's true? And, and more than that, what is magisterial? What of uh, what the Pope says or, or various bishops say, what is magisterial? So there's a lot to talk about in this topic. And so I figured I'd just get a little bit into it. Uh, I'm not trying to rock too many boats or make too many waves. Really what I want to dial into is what is the magisterium? What does magisterial authority look like? And how can we weigh the various sources of the magisterium and the various weights that those documents carry? Uh, so that's what we're looking at today. Today is going to be a much longer episode than normal because there's so much good stuff to get into. Now, as always, I have the written version of this uh, coming out via email from willwritecatholic.substack.com. So if you haven't liked that, subscribed, uh, followed, whatever uh, Substack does, uh, if you haven't done that, I, I recommend go over there, sign up with your email, and you'll get all of these straight to your inbox and you'll be able to read and reference back to a lot of the things I'm talking about today. So without further ado, let's dive in. Pope Francis is the 266th Pope of the Holy Catholic Church. Having been elected to the papacy following the vacancy left by Pope Benedict XVI's resignation. And I'll be the first to admit, I was beyond upset when Benedict announced his resignation. I entertained for a while all sorts of notions of conspiracy theories that he must be being forced to resign in some way. Uh, though he has maintained that the decision was his and born from personal prayer and discernment. So when, when Pope Francis became Pope... I was watching the news like everyone else in the world, and I heard those words, habemos papam, which means we have a pope, cardinale Bergoglio. And I just thought to myself, who? I had never heard of Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, and I'm thinking, okay, who is this Argentinian-Italian cardinal? Wait, wait a minute, what? He's a Jesuit? And he's chosen the name Francis? Well, this is kind of odd. Um, but then over the, over the last nine years, I myself have been edified, inspired, emboldened by Pope Francis to have an ever, ever greater zeal for evangelization and a decreased sense of materialism. You know, his document, Evangelii Gaudium from 2013, is spectacular. In a lot of ways, it's sort of the continuation of Evangelii Nunciandi by Pope Paul VI and uh, uh, Catechesia Tridende by uh, Pope John Paul II. I also really enjoyed a lot of his teaching points of Laudato Si in 2015. I do take issue with the idea of not having air conditioning. I do live in Phoenix, uh, so that's out of the question. Um, but that's a prudential judgment. That's an opinion. Uh, so anyway, we'll get into that. But uh, Gaudete et Exultate in 2018 has some solid moments as well. And I also particularly like this line from Fratelli Tutti in 2020. He says, 
in paragraph 33, we have gorged ourselves on networking and lost the taste of fraternity. Now, that's a fantastic line. And uh, his most recent document on the Eucharist, uh, Desiderio Desideravi, uh, is beautiful as well, though it doesn't really offer anything substantially new uh, in terms of reflection. Now, there's no shortage of issues with the current pontificate, and that bears saying. Uh, I know there's been some controversy lately about that document that I just mentioned on the Eucharist. Uh, People claiming that the Pope is advancing some sort of Lutheran-esque uh, sola fide doctrine. But I unequivocally denounce these criticisms as the bad fruit of uncharity. What I want to stress here is that I have read every encyclical and exhortation that Pope Francis has published to date, including those not previously listed. And I'll always try to give him a fair shake and read the documents charitably. But I have also been irritated, outraged, scandalized, and befuddled by Pope Francis, especially every time he speaks to reporters on airplanes, gives interviews to atheists who do not take notes during those interviews, then goes back to that same interviewer uh, without much clarification, boggles the mind. He gives talks and sermons that suggest novel interpretations, uh, always bad news when it comes to church teaching. He betrayed the church in China over and over again. And he allows too much nonsense to continue, whether it's in Belgium or Germany or the Amazon and others. And if he says something Jesuitically ambiguous or refuses to clarify matters of doctrine, I am irritated, outraged, scandalized, and befuddled. There are plenty of things to be worried about with Pope Francis. However, I wonder if there are elements in the church that are looking for problems where there are none. Now, it's perfectly appropriate to charitably criticize error and imprudence, but it's not okay to invent mountains out of molehills, or as the case may be, to in invent mountains out of level ground. Pope Francis has done and said many things which are problematic, borderline heretical, if not theologically in error, uh, many of those in my company, my friends, would argue that the line has been crossed numerous times into what could be considered in the future formal or material heresy. And his ger general ambiguity and lack of clarity make it exceptionally difficult to have conversations about the consistency and authority of the church with a whole bunch of different groups, whether it's non-Catholic Christians, whether it's non-Christians entirely, Orthodox Christians, Protestants, whether it's radical traditionalists like Set of Acontists that uh, don't believe that there's been a valid pope, perhaps since Pope Pius XII, and those who reject Benedict's resignation, the so-called Beni Plenis. So this is especially the case in a climate also of, of many lackluster, cowardly bishops and priests, not all, of course, an immobilized laity, a growing contingent of lapsed Catholics, and an ever-looming sexual, uh, sexual abuse crisis. So many in the church are worried. Many of my friends have reached out to me to have conversations about the shenanigans they're seeing coming out of the Vatican or from Pope Francis himself. So what are we, as faithful Catholics, to make of such turbulent times? I thought it might be fruitful to dive into what the magisterium is, and how we can evaluate levels of magisterial authority.
So first, what is the magisterium? Well, we need to start here. Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, and the incarnate Word of God. He's also our King, reigning as our sovereign Lord. As the full revelation of God to man, he imparted all that he taught, did, is, and implemented to the apostles. As the fathers of the Second Vatican Council put it in Dei Verbum, the sacred constitution on the word of God, they said this in paragraph four. Jesus perfected revelation by fulfilling it through his whole work of making himself present and manifesting himself. Through his words and deeds, his signs and wonders, but especially through his death and glorious resurrection from the dead and final sending of the spirit of truth. So the church is his body, of which he is the head, and he still reigns. In obedience to him, the faithful here on earth continue to perpetuate this sacred deposit of faith, which is sacred tradition and sacred scriptures, until he comes again in glory. The Council Fathers in the Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, uh, said this, and this is a rather long quote, so bear with me. This is paragraph 18 of the Constitution on the Church. This sacred council, that is the Second Vatican Council, following closely in the footsteps of the First Vatican Council, with that council, teaches and declares that Jesus Christ, the Eternal Shepherd, established his holy church having sent forth the apostles as he himself had been sent by the Father, and he willed that their successors, namely the bishops, should be shepherds in his church, even to the consummation of the world. And in, the, in order that the episcopate itself might be one and undivided, he placed blessed Peter over the other apostles and instituted in him a permanent and visible source of found, and foundation of unity of faith and communion." In all this teaching about the institution, the perpetuity, the meaning and reason for the sacred primacy of the Roman pontiff and of his infallible magisterium, this sacred council again proposes to be firmly believed by all the faithful. Continuing in that same undertaking, this council is resolved to declare and proclaim before all men the doctrine concerning bishops, the successors of the apostles, who together with the successor of Peter, the vicar of Christ, the visible head of the whole church, govern the house of the living God. End quote. So the magisterium, simply put, is the teaching authority of Jesus Christ. And, and truly, that's what magisterium means. Magister means teacher in Latin. It's the teaching authority of Jesus Christ to authentically interpret the deposit of faith in the age of the church passed on to the apostles and their successors, the pope and the bishops in union with him. As history progresses, we have new technology, means of communication, and techniques which change the way we interact with the world and one another and how we understand the world around us. And as such, in his wisdom, God gave us the magisterium to faithfully interpret the perennial and unchanging teachings of the church on faith and morals in contemporary circumstances, from age to age. Now, it's important to emphasize this last point. Church teaching on faith and morals cannot, does not, and will not change. Let me repeat that. Church teaching on faith and morals, the principles of faith and morals, cannot, does not, and will not change. As the Second Vatican Council clearly teaches in Dei Verbum, paragraph 4, 
Quote, the church dispensation, therefore, as the new and definitive covenant will never pass away, and we now await no further new public revelation before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. So the church's magisterium, therefore, does not give us new teachings that contradict old ones, nor does it give us new revelations or pretend to alter the foundational doctrines and dogmas of the holy faith. The magisterium at any given time is beholden to the preceding magisterium. We faithfully echo on the words, life, and teachings of Jesus Christ in his church without substantial change, understanding that he is our king and the Holy Spirit is guiding and guarding us in the church today. So the word of God, the Dei Verbum, the the word of God, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, is the supreme rule of faith, the standard by which the divine and infallible faith can be tested. So this rule of faith and the faith itself are from the same divine wellspring. This rule of faith is not extrinsic to the faith, nor is it an add-on to the faith. Truly, the word of God is not a collection of writings or even teachings. The word of God is Jesus Christ himself. Paraphrasing from Pope Benedict, we're not a religion of the book of God, but rather a religion of the Word of God, with a capital W. So the Word of God flows into sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Sacred scripture is the driving force of doctrine. So the written Word of God is inerrant. It's faithfully transmitted. It's guarded from error by Holy Mother Church. Now, sacred tradition is not primarily a collection of doctrines or writings, but as the Directory for Catechesis teaches, in paragraph 26, is a life of faith that is renewed every day. St. Vincent of Lorenz taught sacred sacred tradition advances, and as he says, consolidated with the years, developed with time, deepened with age. So how then can we arrive at the true interpretation of sacred scripture and sacred tradition? Well, this is where the magisterium comes in. And the directory for catechesis puts the relationship between scripture, tradition, and magisterium well. In paragraph 26 of the directory, and also referencing Dei Verbum, paragraph 10, uh, the directory says this, The church's magisterium, supported by the Holy Spirit and endowed with the charism of truth, exercises its ministry of authentically interpreting the word of God which it serves. The magisterium therefore performs the ministry of safeguarding the integrity of revelation, the word of God contained in tradition and in scripture, and its continual transmission. It is this living magisterium that interprets it in a consistent manner and is subject to it. End quote. So the living magisterium interprets scripture and tradition in a consistent manner. And the key phrase for today's discussion is that the magisterium is, quote, subject to, end quote, the word of God. The magisterium is subject to the word of God. Remember, the supreme rule of faith is the word of God, Jesus Christ. The church cannot and will not contradict Jesus on faith and morals or anything else because the church is divinely guarded by the charism of infallibility. Now, this charism is a gift of the Holy Spirit uh, that belongs, properly speaking, to the magisterium. 
which is the bishops in union with the Pope. So, okay, that's what the magisterium is and what it does, but how do we weigh magisterial teachings? See, doctrine doesn't change, but it can develop in a certain sense. Therefore, it's, it's important to understand what is set dogma, what is developed doctrine, and what is merely a discipline, and so on. So we need to be able to weigh magisterial authority. Now, not everything the church teaches is marked by infallibility. For example, let's look at the 1998 profession of faith that used to be used when someone assumed a certain office in the church. So following a public profession of the Nicene Creed, they would say this, I also firmly accept and hold each and everything definitively proposed by the church regarding teaching on faith and morals. Moreover, I adhere with religious submission of will and intellect to the teachings which either the Roman pontiff or the College of Bishops enunciate when they exercise their authentic magisterium, even if they do not intend to proclaim these teachings by a definitive act. So here, are, we see some things that are definitively proposed on faith and morals. To these, we firmly accept and hold. We give what's called religious submission of intellect and will to the teachings of the Pope or College of Bishops when they speak together, even on matters other than faith and morals, even in the ordinary magisterium. And clearly from this, we see a distinction in level of authority and level of adherence to the spectrum of church teachings. So the main categories in order of importance are one, dogmas, two, other infallible statements, three, doctrines that have not been taught infallibly, four, theological opinions, and five, other non-doctrinal statements. So let's begin at the top, dogma. Dogmas of the church are truths that the magisterium teaches infallibly as being divinely revealed in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Now these can be taught by the Pope, an ecumenical council, or by the church's ordinary and universal magisterium. Dogmas require the theological assent of faith by all the members of the faithful. So in other words, we're not free to dissent from them in any way. To obstinately place them in doubt or deny them is to fall under the censure of heresy. So a quick aside on heresy. A lot of people speak about this priest or that or bishop, the pope, or layperson as being a heretic. Now we have to understand there's a difference between the crime of heresy and the sin of heresy. So what is the crime of heresy? Crime of heresy is formal and material heresy. This is, quote, the willful and persistent adherence to an error in matters of faith, end quote, on the part of a baptized person. So the persistence in error comes from having been formally corrected, but continuing in this grave error. So heresy is not only a crime, it's a grave sin as well, even if it's committed privately. Now, the important note here is that heresy is the crime and sin of corrupting dogmas of the church. Heresy is thrown around a lot today as a term, but most of the time, the issues would better be described as either theological error or imprudence. For example, if the pope or a bishop phrases something in an unfortunate way, they could have misspoken. Right? It, it's not to this level of, of willfully and obstinately 
preaching something that's contrary to a dogma, then being formally corrected and then obstinately refusing to recant, right? They could have just misspoken or they could have made a theological error without it rising to the level of grave sin and the crime of heresy. So we have to proceed in love of the truth, but also in charity for the individual speaking or writing. All right, so the second level, these are other infallible statements. So a step below dogma is opinions to be held definitively. And these are taught infallibly, but are not directly divinely revealed. So the fact that only men can be priests is infallible doctrine, but it's not technically speaking dogma because it's an open question theologically whether it's connected to divine revelation or is itself an example of divine revelation. Now see, that doesn't change the fact that it's true. It's infallibly taught that only men can receive the sacrament of holy orders forever and for always. It's just a matter of whether it's connected to divine revelation or is an example of itself of divine revelation. That's the distinction. So there's a related discipline associated with this of clerical celibacy in the Latin church and Episcopal celibacy in the Eastern churches. So we see the dogma pertaining to the sacrament of holy orders. We see the infallible doctrine and reality that only baptized men can validly receive this sacrament and then a discipline of clerical celibacy. But all three, dogma, doctrine, and discipline, are important, but in various weights and with different magisterial weight. Okay, according to St. John Paul II, an odd to end on fidem, in such cases of infallible statements, the faithful are required to give firm and definitive assent to these truths. This is how he phrases it. And he continues, based on faith in the Holy Spirit's assistance to the church's magisterium and on the Catholic doctrine of the infallibility of the magisterium in these matters. All right, stop there for a sec. So who are we trusting? We're trusting the Holy Spirit, right? We're not trusting fallible men. We are trusting the Holy Spirit to be infallible. Okay, continue. Whoever denies these truths would be in a position of rejecting a truth of Catholic doctrine and would therefore no longer be in full communion with the Catholic Church, end quote. So these statements still pack a lot of weight. They are infallible doctrine to be held with firm and definitive assent. And they're guarded by the charism of infallibility. So other examples of such infallible statements would include when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, uh, from the chair of Peter, with the authority of Peter. This is extraordinary magisterium, uh, utilized very, very seldomly. When the bishops in communion with the Pope define doctrine at a general council, this is also called extraordinary magisterium. And then finally, when the bishops in communion with the Pope, together with the Pope, propose definitively an agreement, though they are dispersed. This is ordinary and universal magisterium. All right, let's move on to the next rung in the ladder. These are doctrines that have not been taught infallibly. So when the Pope speaks in an ordinary but authoritative way, we are required to submit our mind, intellect, and will, but it's not guaranteed to be infallible. The, the doctrines are true that are being taught if they're being taught in faith and morals. However, they're not guaranteed to be infallible, so there could be a better formulation in the in the future, a, a deeper understanding. 
So likewise, it is the case with bishops in communion with the Pope who teach authoritatively in their diocese, right? These are doctrines. But just because these doctrines have not been infallibly declared does not make them unimportant, right? The difference between a doctrine and a dogma sometimes is that a dogma is simply a doctrine that's been bolded, italicized, underlined, and highlighted, right? The, the, the text hasn't changed, just our attention to it. These doctrines are also a part of the deposit of faith. So sometimes in the history of the church, there's arisen solid reasons to take the time to define certain doctrines to protect against error or heresy. Okay, the fourth, theological opinions. Theological opinions are not infallible, nor are they authoritative. They do not belong to uh, the deposit of faith as such. They are the opinions of theologians. And so opinions, you can be in legitimate disagreement and ongoing dialogue. Uh, now, this is a, a very important part of us understanding doctrine, right? Without theological opinions, we would not have arrived at the truth. So the Holy Spirit is operative in this realm as well, uh, but we do not accept the opinions of theologians as gospel truth, uh, to use an expression. All right, the fifth level. Other non-doctrinal statements. So there are some teachings of the magisterium that are not universal uh, and to be held always. They are more or less circumstantial to time, customs, or culture. For example, if a church document describes the state of a society, makes suggestions or exhortations, these are to be, to be received with respect and a grateful heart, but do not require strict intellectual assent. Uh, so, for example, if the Pope or a bishop or someone else said, you know, the, the 1960s, God was moving so powerfully in the church or outside of the church, uh, there's just a very clear indication that, that great things were happening in the 1960s. That's not entirely false, uh, but there's also some really horrible things that happened in the 60s that we're going to be dealing with for a long time, if not hundreds of years. Uh, so that would be an example of a uh, non-doctrinal statement that that's true or false, but if someone says this, we should receive that uh, with a grateful heart and with respect, but we don't necessarily have to have strict intellectual assent. We can disagree uh, as long as we do so charitably. So what are some important sources of authoritative Catholic teaching? Uh, and here I'll start with non-papal documents. So there is a hierarchy, not just of dogma, doctrines, and disciplines, but also of magisterial texts. Now, these next ones I'm going to list here are not in any particular order of hierarchy. These are just things that, that are, are fairly authoritative. So the writings of the church fathers, these are the writers of the first eight centuries of the church, are accepted as true and authoritative when they speak in unison, so to speak, uh, on a matter over those eight centuries. And repetition through the ages does matter. And that's actually an important principle uh, when we come to the Pope as well. If multiple Popes say the same thing over and over and over through the decades or centuries, this is very, very important to understanding magisterial weight. All right, uh, besides the Church Fathers, we have the Doctors of the Church, the doctors of the church are those ecclesial writers who have been given this title by the popes for the great advantage given to the whole church derived from their teachings. There's now 23 doctors of the church 
who are held in very high esteem for their faithful teaching. And the other saints, as well, contribute to the great tradition of the church in varying degrees through their lives and work. Uh, There's different rules of life. So these rules govern communal life for certain communities, and they've been approved by the Pope. Uh, For example, the Benedictine rule of life is the ordered way of living uh, as a Benedictine monk in a monastery. Uh, Moving on from rules of life, we have the Code of Canon Law. The Code of Canon Law was first compiled from various sources in 1917 and then was, was then revised in 1982. Uh, and the 1982 version is our current church law, which governs all Catholics of the Latin Rite. And there's also a Code of Canon Law for the Eastern churches. Now, these canons are authoritative and they're binding on the faithful. Uh, in fact, the canons pertaining to the sacrament of marriage are binding on the Catholic faithful, even if that person was baptized Uh, in the Catholic Church, and then never step foot in a Catholic Church again. Once you are baptized a Catholic, you are a Catholic. Uh, And so canon law comes to bear. All right, let's move on to papal documents. Uh, And this is where things get really interesting, and I I think it's once you kind of see how this breaks out, uh, it makes it a lot simpler to be able to receive what the Pope gives us, whoever he may be uh, at the given time. And, and understand where does this fit in the magisterial hierarchy of importance of documents. So papal documents all carry various magisterial weight. The five main sources of these are in order of importance from least to most are Wednesday audiences, apostolic exhortations, encyclical letters, papal bulls, and then finally what's called a motu proprio. So first, Wednesday audiences. Every Wednesday, normatively, when the Pope is in Rome, he gives an audience and a talk to those gathered in St. Peter's Square. Now, these audiences are authoritative when they involve teaching on faith and morals, but they're not infallible. Uh, An example of this would be like St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, which is taken from his weekly Wednesday addresses. The lowest level of a papal document Uh, would be an apostolic exhortation. This is a document in which the Pope exhorts the faithful on a certain matter. Uh, An exhortation does not define doctrine, generally speaking, by design. Uh, It's higher in authority than a normal ecclesial letter. Uh, And exhortations generally in the past few decades have followed after a meeting of a synod of bishops uh, to outline their deliberations and for the Pope to give his Uh, sort of assent or his uh, feedback or his ideas based on what was discussed. A papal encyclical, the next rung up, uh, is a letter from the Pope to the entire church. Encyclical means like a circular letter. It's meant to be read by everyone in the church. The first encyclical letter, in in a sense, was the first letter of St. Peter, which is in the New Testament. The next recorded example after Peter is a letter from uh, Pope Clement I to the Christians in Corinth. Um, And an encyclical seeks to clarify a certain doctrine. And that's an important distinction because that focus on doctrine makes it part of the ordinary magisterium of the Pope and thus requires us to submit our mind and will on matters of faith and morals. And encyclicals have a high level of magisterial authority. 
They're not necessarily outlining dogma, um, but they're still, they still require the religious submission of intellect and will. It's still very important that we pay attention and are respectful and receive what the Pope is teaching us in the charism uh, of his office. Next up is a papal bull. This is a public decree or charter issued by the Pope. These are authoritative and binding. A bull may treat statutes, uh, appointment of bishops, dispensations, excommunications, apostolic constitutions, canonizations, convocations, uh, all sorts of things. But there's really a legal quality to them. And then finally, a moto proprio is technically a type of rescript, which is an official edict or announcement. A moto proprio is an official legal act taken by the Pope on his own power and volition and personally signed by him. It is the full legal effect for canon law. Moto proprio literally means by his own hand. Uh, so again, from least weight to most weight, we have Wednesday audiences, apostolic exhortations, encyclical letters, papal bulls, and then moto proprios for papal documents. The final uh, realm we should look at is council documents. Uh, at least from the Second Vatican Council, we had three main types. Constitutions, decrees, and declarations. Uh, now, beyond that, uh, from previous councils, we had what were called canons. Uh, and in the canons, you would often get uh, sort of the definitions of who would be excommunicated and for what. Uh, these would end with the words anathema sit, uh, or let them be separated, let them be anathema. Uh, so they would formulate it sort of backwards. They would say uh, the heresy and then say, Whoever believes this, let them be separated. So those are canons. Those are very high magisterial authority. Uh, beyond that, we have three main types of council documents, constitutions, decrees, and declarations. An apostolic constitution is the most solemn form of legislation issued by the Pope. And they are either doctrinal or pastoral. And they're issued as papal bulls because of their solemn and public form. So the council documents, strictly speaking, are papal documents, right? They're papal bulls. Now, where was that? That was above encyclicals and just below motu proprio. So this is very high magisterial authority, uh, extraordinary magisterium. Uh, next is a decree. This is an order or a law given by the council and the pope to the rest of the world or a specific group of people. So these are legislative acts of the pope. These decrees have the full power of the Pope in making laws. Uh, and then finally, declarations. Declarations are more specific and usually address a specific topic. However, they, they still carry the same weight as other documents of a general council of bishops in communion with the Pope. So they're authoritative. And when they speak on matters of faith and morals, they are guided, guarded by the charism of infallibility. Uh, and then just a final note on catechisms. So throughout the church's history, there have been various systematic written presentations of the faith. These are called catechisms, from the root word catechesis, uh, which means to echo on, so echo on the teaching from Jesus to us. Some of these are universal, and others are for a particular locale. The Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, was promulgated in 1992, originally, uh, and then in English in 1997. 
And this document was a game changer in a lot of ways. It was the first truly universal catechism uh, in that so many people were involved in creating it. And, and it's so beautifully compiled, and it, it's formed on the four pillars uh, from Acts 2.42. Of they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles, breaking of the bread, the communal life, and prayer. So from that, we have the apostolic teaching. Uh, we have the sacraments. We have the moral life, and we have prayer. Um, so it's really, it's awesome. But another, another time, another day, maybe I'll go deeper into the catechism and why I love it so much. But it's really the go-to standard in terms of understanding what the church is and what she believes, um, really drawing from the richness of the three main constitutions of Vatican II, as well as the church fathers, every preceding council, other synods from time uh, gone by, as well as the writings of the saints. I mean, it's just a, it's a masterwork. The Baltimore Catechism is also worth noting. It's a question and answer catechism, uh, which arose from a local council in Baltimore, Maryland in 1885. And it's based on St. Robert Bellarmine's 1614 small catechism. Now, the important thing to keep in mind about catechisms is that they are compilations. They contain dogma, doctrine, discipline, sometimes prudential applications of principles and laws, sometimes opinions, sometimes uh, other non-doctrinal statements. So the doctrines contained in the catechism are thus magisterial, but they bear no more weight than before they were compiled in the catechism. So just having them added into the catechism doesn't suddenly make that dogma or doctrine worth more. I think that's an important thing to realize. So in judging the nature of a teaching, uh, we can first look at the nature of the document that teach, uh, of the document that teaches a doctrine. Some are more authoritative than others. For example, a papal encyclical is more authoritative than the weekly general audiences a pope gives, and a dogmatic constitution of Vatican II is more authoritative than the council's decrees. The second test that I mentioned earlier is the frequency with which the magisterium repeats a doctrine. So if it's something mentioned only occasionally or it hasn't been mentioned in centuries, uh, it will have a lower level of authority attached to it. But if it's something that the magisterium repeats with great regularity, it's more authoritative. The third test is the tone of the words used to express the teaching. If it's proposed briefly and tentatively, it will have less authority. And if it's expounded at length or emphatically, it will have more authority. So keeping all of that in mind, what do we do if the Pope at any given time in history seems to be in error? So what do we do when we think that Pope Francis will we'll make it a little bit more present, a little bit more personal? What do we what do we do if we think that Pope Francis is in error or is holding heretical positions? First, we pray for him. Can't forget that. We must pray for him. And without, without terms, we need to pray for the Pope. I, I know a lot of people uh, want to change certain things. Like I've heard uh, from some more traditionalist circles, people say, uh, and now let us pray for the holy intentions of the Holy Father, uh, as if God doesn't know um, not to answer prayers that are, are evil in intention or something like that. Just, just pray for him. Let God be God. 
Second, we recognize that God alone judges the Pope. And I mean this juridically, right? Only the College of Cardinals can formally correct the Pope in any sort or sort of authoritative way. Further, no one can be found to be a manifest and formal heretic without a trial. So in general, stop calling people heretics. It's unhelpful and it's often uncharitable. And frankly, it's annoying. We also need to remember that we must not be guilty of the sin of rash judgment in regards to the Pope or anyone else for that matter. The Fourth Council of Constantinople in Canon 10 says this, As divine scripture clearly proclaims, do not find fault before you investigate and understand first and then find fault. And does our law judge a person without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, look, I don't claim to have the answers. Uh, How do you solve a problem like Pope Francis? No clue. I don't know. Um, but God does, and I know and believe that the Holy Spirit guides and guards the church. I know and believe that the church is the body of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, and King. And I know and believe that the entire apostolic action of the church, despite any pope, bishop, priest, deacon, layperson, or religious, is always directed to the glory of the Father. Because it is the body of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, and it is enlivened by the Holy Spirit. The church is divine. It is not primarily a human institution. And so those who would question their faith, those who would falter because of some things that they see that are concerning, or to say that the Pope isn't a Pope, he's an anti-Pope, and yada, yada, yada. Stop it. Stop it. Along with me, dive deeply into trust. Trusting in God, not in ourselves. And I'm saying this, and maybe I'm getting a little worked up, but listen, I have been, if you are listening to this and you are conflicted and you're like, well, he is a damn heretic. I've been there. I get it. I, I, I empathize with you. But I think it's time to move on from that. I think that's a childish response. It's not virtuous. It's not what God is calling us to. I believe that strongly. I propose that we dive deep into the study and love of sacred scripture and sacred tradition. The perennial truths of the faith will not and cannot pass away. If the Pope is truly in error, he ought to be charitably and fraternally corrected. But if you're reading this or listening to the podcast, then you're likely not the one to correct the Holy Father. Do not trust everything you hear from the armchair theologians and gossipers of the church on YouTube and other podcasts. Theirs is a poison which does just as much, if not more, harm to the church as anything we're seeing from the hierarchy today. I know this is a much longer podcast than normal, uh, but I didn't want to shortchange any of the explanations of magisterial documents. And there's so much more to say uh, on this topic, especially. But I will opt to wait until another occasion, and I will end with the words of St. Paul to the Thessalonians. Uh, And I I pray that you let it speak to you um, as it did to the Thessalonians so many years ago, and it it does to us today. St. Paul says this, Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen.
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope that it's uh, been a blessing to you in some way. I hope that you learned something. I hope that uh, it gave you some inspiration, perhaps set your mind at ease on some things. And uh, we'll be back next time, next uh, two weeks from now, with a brand new episode. We're going to be looking at uh, the topic of the Catholic Solemnity of All Saints and intercession. Uh, We're looking at Halloween, right? Should Catholics celebrate Halloween? Why or why not? And what do we really believe about the saints? Do we believe that they're alive? Do we believe that they can intercede for us? What does that look like? Uh, So that's what we'll be doing next time. Uh, But in the meantime, I hope that you're well. I hope that you're happy, healthy, and holy. And I wish all the same to those that you love. Have a fantastic couple of weeks. (laughs) 